Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 45th blockbuster episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that doesn't accidentally leak new sets six months early. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everyone. Uh, glad to be here. Looking forward to our 45th episode. Uh, our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. All right, so what are our uh, four segments this week, Travis? Well, uh, our uh, pre-segment is uh, me announcing that I have a cold, so I'm going to sound a little nasally this week. Uh, <laughs> our segment one is top movers, where we will look at the cards that have seen the largest price increases this week. Segment two is our cards to watch. These are cards that James and I think may see price increases. Segment three is our metagame we can review. These are, uh, well, this week we're going to quite a selection this week. I'm not exactly sure which one we'll end up landing on, but we had standard uh, Grand Prix in Denver and Madrid, and the Star City Invitational was this weekend, which means we got a standard top eight there and a modern top eight, and the RPTQs were this past weekend. Uh, so we've got a lot of modern decks to digest too, so we'll, we'll hop around between all of those. Um, there's some There's some narratives in there. Uh, and finally, segment four, our topic of the week, we're going to talk about the spoilers that just released a handful of hours ago. Uh, we saw the next two sets that have uh, unofficially now been revealed. Um, so let's start right at the top. Uh, our top movers, we have a short list this week. Uh, James, I'm going to make you take the first one. I, I say make and not let on this one. Sure. So Thieves Auction uh, made a move apparently from a dollar fifty to two fifty. That's a dollar up, but sixty-seven percent change. Um, this is a, a card that I'm assuming is moving on casual and/or EDH demand. Um, I don't know a whole lot else to say about that one. Yeah, that's why I made you take it. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't have a good beat on this one, so I believe it's probably just low supply. Uh, but I mean, the price moved, you know, 66%. It's not, it's not a nothing. Maybe there's only a couple copies on the low end. Yeah, let's take a look here and see what we're dealing with. So on TCG Player, this is a 8th edition uh, and Mercadian Masks rare. Um, and yeah, it just looks like we're down to low supply on that one. Um, for those who don't know, this is a red sorcery, four and three red, set aside all cards in play, starting with you. Each player chooses one of the cards set aside and puts it into play tapped under his or her control. Repeat the process until all the cards have been chosen. So if you're running the kind of deck in EDH that has a bunch of smaller stuff, um, this is a pretty sexy card. Like say you had some kind of goblins build or... Um, uh, hyper-aggressive deck that was trying to get in under the wire and then build up with uh, team buffs or tribal buffs. Um, you know, you could start redistributing giant creatures in the mid-game and, and hopefully come out on top. Um, it's more of a chaos play than anything else since it's relatively unreliable as to what's going to come out of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the only way to really make use of this is to just create a huge field of garbage cards, permanence. Um 
So yeah, I, I don't think there's anything too interesting here. Uh, I mean, I guess the one thing to note is it's eighth and Mercadian mass. So those are two um, low supply sets uh, given today's uh, player base. So um, if there's a real compelling reason to play these cards in the future, we may see price spikes, but I don't think this is ever going to be anything more than a gimmick card. Then again, Foil Storm, Storm Crow is like $40, so yeah, whatever. Yeah, the problem with these like moves from like the dollar range to two or three dollars that it's is that it's impossible to make money after time and fees. Um, you know, if I'm getting in on dollar cards, and we're going to talk about some later in the cast, um, I really want them to be hitting four or five, six dollars, and and hopefully dealing with them in bulk so that it's worth my time to even pay attention. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, when we we mention these, it's almost strictly so that you can look at it and go, well, does this have a reason to be moving? And if so, now would be the time to buy. Uh, but if not, you know, if you can't put your finger on why it's moving, then just ignore it and move on. Cool. What was next um, on the list? Yeah, next is Contagion Engine. This is an artifact back from the Scars of Mirrodin block. And uh, when it comes into play, you put a minus one, minus one counter on uh, all of your opponent's creatures. Or, I'm sorry, on each creature target player controls. So in EDH, you can only hit one player with it. Um, but the relevant text is uh, you can pay four and tap to proliferate. And then proliferate again in one of those uh, oddly satisfying rules texts that you see crop up every now and then. Um, proliferate, then proliferate again. So uh, this definitely um, seems to fit in both Brea and Atraxa, the two new four-color commanders. Uh, I believe this is probably related more to Atraxa because that has proliferate written on her. So um, extra proliferating is great. Yeah, this card is pretty bonkers with uh, Planeswalkers. But... It's going to be pretty yeah, useful in Brea too, uh, at least some Brea builds. So there are not a lot of copies left floating around out there right now. There's less than a page on TCG Player, you know, maybe 15, no, 25, 30 copies. Uh, but the price is up to $10. So I wouldn't expect to see the price on this climb too much higher. Uh, I think we're kind of at the peak of this. And this also strikes me as a card that, you know, wherever they put proliferate, Contagion Engine will probably show up. So we may see this, um, I don't know, I mean, Infect is a possibility in Modern Masters 2017, and we did just see an Ink Moth Nexus promo show up for the WMCQs, um, so maybe Contagion Engines in Modern Masters next year, I don't know. I do know that I'm selling any of my spare Contagion Engines, though. If it hits a reprint, uh, it tanks. If it doesn't hit a reprint, I think it climbs. The... Um... Yeah, there's 20 or 30 copies and probably another 20 or 30 spread out between eBay and various vendors on MTG price and so forth. But there's not a whole lot of copies left under, say, $12. And then they pretty steeply climb up towards $20. Um, the card could easily hit $20, I think, on a tracks of demand alone if it dodges a reprint for another 6 to 12 months. Um, and, and we're really only one one guy deciding he wants to go a little deeper on this. Uh, if he, somebody drops less than $1,000, they can clean out the rest. Which yeah, and we'll uh, we'll cover that in uh, that in a moment. Um, so why don't you why don't you do the next one for us, James? Sure. Uh, another card that's on the move largely because of Brea uh, being the one of the two most popular commanders coming out of the Commander 2016 release is the Master Transmuter. Um, this is the card that lets you uh, swap a card that you have in play with an artifact in your hand, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Return an artifact in play to your hand. Put one from your hand in the play. Right. So it was originally printed in Conflux, again in Arch Enemy, and uh, you know could easily have shown up in Commander 2016, but didn't. And uh, as a result, uh, we're, we are seeing some movement. It's uh, a rare from an era where it may as well have been a mythic. 
and there's basically no inventory left on TCG Player. A couple, a copy at thir- at basically thirteen, another copy at like seventeen, a foil at forty, and that's about it. Uh, yeah, yeah. This has been kind of pricey-ish for a while, so this is sort of like a second movement. Um, but you know, we're mostly looking at the foils on this. So, uh, if you had foil master transmuters, you probably already sold them. I guess I don't know who would have been holding them at this point. You know, I may have some of these cards sitting around in a binder, and probably time to go take a look. Yeah, I would. Um, and our last card for this week is the Chain Veil from M15. Uh, both foils and non-foils bumped. Uh, the non-foils went from two to about six dollars. Now. People who uh, observe this field from a bit of a distance are going to look at this and tell you that it went up because of um, Atraxa and Planeswalker decks, you know, that type of thing. People a little closer to uh, the ground zero on this one are going to tell you that there was one specific person who bought over 1,100 copies of this card over the span of a couple days uh, and single-handedly drove the price up. From two to six. I also happen to know that he sold like 200 of them, 300 of them at about $6 so far. So this has a few interesting uh, repercussions. Um, the one that comes to mind most readily is that you will recall the card Alurin. Alurin is a reserve list enchantment um, that allows you to play creatures with mana costs under three for free as, a, as though they had flash. So it's a very powerful enchantment. That card has spiked probably three times over the last seven years as people attempted to spike the price. Um, and it's a playable legacy deck. It's not bad. But the price always, refu- pretty much always refused to stick on people attempting to, uh, to spike it. And myself and plenty of others kept coming back to the table and pointing out like, hey, look, you know what? People can buy these cards all they want. But if the demand doesn't materialize and these prices don't stick. Uh, so it's so it's ultimately wasted effort on the hands of the person who didn't. And this was kind of our defense for like, oh, people in our field don't make cards more expensive. They might make them temporarily more expensive. Well, the chain veil, he bought them at two bucks and he's selling hundreds of them at six dollars. Uh, he pretty much single handedly managed to change the price on that card. Now, I'm sure James will be quick to point out that the demand for the card was supported at six dollars. Uh, we just weren't there. Um, which is not, uh, which is fair. I think that's, I think that's a completely fair point. Uh, it's just sort of like the, the price hadn't met the demand, which again, it's very fair. Uh, but it is, it is interesting to see firsthand somebody have, having actually done this and not just with like an ancient reserve list card, but something that was printed like two years ago. Uh, so, so there you go. It was, it was manual. It was forced, but it worked. You know me too well. Uh, <laughs> I, I certainly, would never find fault with somebody who identified a gap in the market uh, and filled it. The chain veil has been on the, in the back of my mind or ha- has been brought up in conversation numerous times since it's printing. Um, at various points, I have bought in for a few copies here and there, so I'm certainly sitting on some that I got pretty cheap. Um, I'm happy to see it go up. Um, the reason I think it's a it was a totally solid play on the behalf of the individual is that at two dollars we're talking about an utterly unique mythic. Um, if you don't recall what this does, it's a legendary artifact for four. At the beginning of your end step, if you didn't activate a loyalty loyalty ability of a planeswalker this turn, you lose two life. 
So obviously it's a, it's meant to be a cornerstone piece for um, Planeswalker decks in either casual or EDH. For four and a tap, you get to, uh, for each Planeswalker you control, you may activate one of its loyalty abilities once this turn, as though none of its loyalty abilities have been activated. So basically you get to activate each of your Planeswalkers twice. When you combine that with Atraxa and with Doubling Season and with various other cards that have been uh, going off uh, the hook on the basis of Atraxa's popularity, and Contagion Engine is also relevant in that discussion, um, it's not that crazy to then, you know, figure out what the next few cards are down the path that are going to be auto-includes in those Planeswalker decks. Um, Super Friends is a, pers- is a, a persistently uh, popular theme um, in the casual slash EDH world. Um, which of us doesn't like activating multiple Planeswalkers per turn? Um, and a Mythic at $2 that was only printed once? Um yeah, I mean, it seems like a really good move to make. And I'm surprised that he was unable to unload, quote-unquote, hundreds of copies at six. Um, that seems really fast. Uh, and I'm not sure that there are very many Magic cards at all that sell hundreds of copies per week unless somebody else is buying them off their hands in bulk. So I would cast a little shade on that comment until I saw evidence. Um, but it doesn't really matter much. I think that the the play is still solid whether or not he's even outed any um, so far because... Uh, I, I suspect that this card can set up shop in the five to ten dollar range um, pretty easily and hold that um, until the rest of the supply dries up and then even go higher than that you know ten fifteen twenty dollars isn't crazy for a uh, a one of EDH card that you know people are gonna put in one specific deck one of the things that uh, would give me some pause on this card is that the best EDH cards are the ones that appear everywhere, like Soul Ring, where pretty much if you have 10 EDH decks, you're going to buy 10 Soul Rings. Um, whereas this card is very specific to uh, a Planeswalker theme um, by its very nature. And so you might only be building one Planeswalker deck or none at all. Um, and, and on that basis, I think that, uh, you know, without speculatory action um, tr- attempting to drive up the price the inventory is going to drain a lot slower than some of the other possible targets. Yeah, I, I, I'm right with you on that last point that, um, you know, if there's only demand from one deck or deck type or, you know, that narrow archetype, uh, it is much more difficult for cards to really spike because even if it's very popular in that one type, if this other card sees play in four different decks or four types of decks, uh, you've just got so much more. So much more demand there. Um, I mean, maybe it wasn't hundreds, but I'm pretty sure it's it's triple digits quantities sold at this point. So, you know, par- part of this too ties into what I think happens every now and then is that there are cards out there that are very good in a slot, very good in a place. So, for instance, Chain Veil is great in, in these Atraxa decks, but a lot of people uh, building those decks don't know the card exists. Um you know, it's really easy for a lot of this stuff to fly under the radar, especially if you're a little newer to the magic or you forgot it existed. I mean, I'll be honest, like, I know the card, but it had fallen off my radar. Uh, you know, we haven't covered it, I don't think, at any point in this. Well, maybe that's not true. Back in, like, one of the very first episodes, I might have talked about it. But my point being is it's easy for a lot of players to forget about this. So somebody goes out and buys a ton of them, um, causes the price to spike. People start talking about it. Oh, just see this chain veil. And then some dude was sitting there going, oh, I didn't even realize that was a card. Jeez. And then he goes to buy it, and it's 5 bucks. He goes, okay, this card is a $5 card. He doesn't even realize it was $2 a week ago and just buys it. So it's like these buyers almost bring people's attention to it, and it sort of, like, creates demand because you had these buyers who didn't know they were going to be buyers um i think that can sometimes play a part it's hard you know i can't can never quantify something like that what do you think yeah i mean the the, i think that you know 
stranger things have happened. Um, the I think a lot of people will build Super Friends type decks. Um, as I said, they're going to be relatively there's going to be relatively limited demand beyond that. Most of it's going to come from casual. It's not the kind of card that's ever going to show up in modern. Um, although um, uh, call to the Gatewatch. Wait, what's the card that I've got the bet yeah, with? Something like that. Call the Gatewatch. Call to the Gatewatch. Call. Yeah, call, call the Gatewatch. Gatewatch now. Nope, not no, sorry, not call the Gatewatch. Uh... <laughs> deploy the Gatewatch. Deploy. Yes, you don't. First, you call them, then you deploy them. So yeah, deploy the Gatewatch is the card that I bet on with uh, Cliff whether it could top eight modern, and uh, it managed to go three one at the SEG Invitational. <laughs> last week weekend in the super friends deck and uh, i was very disappointed that the guy didn't do uh equally uh as well in the other format because uh if it had top aided i i got to win a pie bet with cliff which would have been pretty excellent <laughs> so i mean if the play the gatewatch can make it into a modern deck and and do that well at an invitational um you know anything could happen i guess yeah i i yep <laughs> i'm uh I'm just waiting for the card in one of these next sets that's like uh, gate cra- like destroy the gate watch, and it's like a nickel bolas themed card that destroys all non nickel bolas planeswalkers or something. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> that makes you have it... to call them, deploy them, and destroy them. That that doesn't at all surprise me. It looks very much like we're getting set up for you know the uh, evil super team to fight the gate watch. Um, based on the yep. spoilers that we got for Amonkhet. And as it turns out, I'm going back through show notes here, and show number 10 was where you called Chain Veil at $1.50 to hit 5. So, win for you. Oh, yeah. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Where is it? Where is it? <laughs> oh, no. I accidentally clicked the X on it. Oh, and I don't know how to get it back. Oh. <laughs> um, right. If you're wondering why he's go... making all those noises, it's because he has a special sound he likes to make when something good happens. Yeah, there was. There's this. Ah, all, right, all right. Fail. We're podcast amateurs. God, and I can't figure <laughs> out how to get them back. They don't come back so, on the next episode. So anyway, sleep sleep well, knowing that you called this many months ago before anybody made a move on it. Yeah, I don't think I own any, so a lot of good it did me. <laughs> Got to follow your own advice. All right, so let's move on from the relatively strange field of top movers this week into the cards to watch, um, which will feature some other similarly um, uh, oddball cards on my part, at least this week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. It looks like you've got more again, so why don't you start? Yeah, so I was going through the Star City Games dollar sale, and it's been going on all week, which is something people should have a browse through, just in case that needs some casual cards, some EDH cards, there's a whole bunch of interesting things in there. Um, if you're into cool promos or card art, there's a bunch of stuff that is never going to be in super high demand um, that uh, you can pick up on at a discount. And uh, a few cards really caught my eye, some of which are now sold out, unfortunately, so I'll skip over those ones and try to focus on the stuff that I think is actually going to make you guys some money. Um, one of the cards that isn't in that sale, but that I managed to locate uh, elsewhere at a very good price is Mirpool. This is the mythic land out of the small set Oath of the Gatewatch. Um, it's currently available in and around $1.50. 
There's relatively deep supply, so there's no rush to get in on this, and I think it's a long-term hold. But it's a very unique land. It comes into play tapped, it makes colorless mana, and then for two and a colorless, you can copy a spell and sack it, so you get a fork effect. You can also get a clone effect for four and a colorless. So it's a one of these utility lands that, because it's a mythic, and they're never going to print anything very close to it again, like for years and years, um, and it's unlikely to see reprint um, anytime soon because it's so specialized, um, it's got a pretty good chance of slowly, slowly draining out of the market, and then boom, two or three years down the road, you wake up and realize that suddenly it's a five to ten dollar card. Yeah, I would agree with you here. I think this is a great opportunity for um, you know small ball, long time growth. Uh, you know, as long as it dodges reprints, you're in great shape. It does some very effective things. Um, it adds waste mana, which matters kind of these days. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, for a dollar or so, I'm I'm on board. Yeah, and I looked it up on EDH Rec, and a lot of the colorless decks play it. It's by no means one of the most popular EDH cards, but it does get included. Um, you know, several hundred decks are running it on on that site, so it leads me to believe that there there is some you know mild but latent demand, and it's the kind of card I like to put you know anywhere from ten to a hundred copies stashed away at on from one of these sales. You know, if you could get in on a hundred copies for a hundred bucks, or you know even seventy seventy five copies for a hundred bucks, you're doing pretty good, and. Uh, you know, in situations like this where you're looking to pull that together, never hurts for you to reach out to some of the bigger dealers and just, you know, give them the list of stuff you're looking for and see if they're willing to try to get it fulfilled. Um, not everybody will do it, um, but if it's the stuff they've just kind of got sitting around, sometimes you can strike a deal. Uh, yeah, those are all uh, those are all salient points. Uh, all right, so I have set, you know I have three cards this week, and they're all kind of uh, in the same ballpark. Um, you know, we've seen Brea and Atraxa do a lot so far, but those are only two of the five commanders. Um, so I'm focusing on the one I built recently, uh, which is Yidris. Um, very powerful card. I think Cascade, the double Cascade will stand the test of time here. Maelstrom Wander was very powerful, very popular. So I'm starting off this week with Avatar of Slaughter was originally from the first commander set that's the only place it was printed um, i'm looking at a very short timeline here and uh, right now i think you can get in for about three dollars a copy um, i think this could get into the high single digits low double digits there are no copies of this basically left i think there's like eight on tcg player right now uh, i haven't you know scoured the internet to check for them but they're really not a lot out there uh, and given how low the supply is and how powerful, like this card does so much, um, I think it's just a very strong card and, and we've seen supply shrink. So I, I would expect this to see a nice little bump in the near future. Yeah, I mean, I've never heard, I, I didn't even re realize this card existed, to be honest. Uh, but single printing basically makes it a mythic um, because it was from the first printing of Commander where they weren't quite sure how well the product was going to do. So there was less of it. A lot of those, the decks from that set ended up being worth quite a lot of money. Um, future Subsequent printings of Commander have been overprinted um, to the point where we've gotten used to them uh, not really making anybody any money um, in aggregate, um, with, uh, a few exceptions. Um, but yeah, I'm having trouble tracking down any copies of this card pretty much anywhere online. Um, looks like, uh, you know, here and there, one copy, two copies, somewhere in the two to $3 range. And once those are dried up, maybe 20, 30 copies down the road, um, somebody else gets to set the plateau and, and then the market gets to test whether it's real. Yeah. So bare minimum, you should buy your copy. Uh, oh yeah, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> 
because right. we, 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 we've just had the commander release folks so you're going to be waiting a while for something like this to see a reprint um, and yeah. it's not the kind of thing that's going to be on anybody's agenda at Wizards to get out there again <clears throat> although you know I don't think anyone would have expected to see Hornet Queen in standard either but <laughs> but <laughs> alright uh, okay what's your next card um, so my, the other one that was on my radar and this was at the Star City Game Sale is one of the dollar cards um, is the buy box promo version of Goblin Dark Dwellers um, tons of copies of these still lying around because they were the buy box promo so every LGS got uh, a double handful of them to give out to people that were buying boxes um, maybe more than a double handful maybe a stack of I don't know what it is 30, 40, 50 maybe 100 copies and so um, you can't really compare them to a pack foil rare that hasn't had such a printing um, they're going to follow a very different curve it's going to be pretty long because you really need them uh, you need some time for the market to absorb all those extra copies especially since there was also pre-release foils and pack foils um, but the reason I like this one is I, the art is clearly superior on the buy a box promo it's just significantly better art um, and at a dollar for a card this powerful, I mean, keep in mind, this is a four, four menace, uh, snapcaster mage on a stick, um, that, uh, alongside torrential gear Hulk and snaps himself, um, makes for a pretty cool, uh, casual Grixis kind of style deck, um, you know, control and, and re-control the, the board by casting instants and sorceries that are of power and then flashing them back from your graveyard, um, is a thing that we're going to want to do for years to come. Um, the cards already proved that it's good in standard. It occasionally sees play uh, in modern, um, and casual EDH will have use for it for a long, long time. Probably a future $5 card. You might have to sit on it for a few years to get there, but um, I've already got a stack and I'm put away in and around $1.25, and I'll probably pick up some more at the SEG sale so that I can top off uh, my holdings and, and then forget about them for a little while. <sighs> this is a game, or a card that hurts my feelings because i liked this so much when it came out in oath of the gate watch and i'm like this how can this card not be good in standard and then it wasn't good in standard and i'm just so burned on it man but it is such a good card i like i can't kind of i can't really figure out why this isn't more played than it is uh, we've had some pretty unique metagame situations um that have made uh you know the and, and the instants and sorceries have been submarined in standard a little bit. Like we've had some very specialized removal, um, you know, grasp of darkness coming back was kind of the, the first time this year where we've said, okay, finally we have like a half decent, uh, removal spell. Um, but because it was up against things like Ishkana and Emrakul, um, you know, not having just instant speed, kill a creature at two mana and not having that for a while, um, has, you know, undermined the the power of those kind of cards. Um, the fact that he only does four and that he can be blocked by multiple creatures isn't the greatest place to be when you're facing Ishkana and three spider friends. Um, so they, there's a bunch of metagame considerations that are may very well hold this back all the way through its standard longevity, um, in which case the, the price might even get lower. Um, I don't think there's a huge rush to get in on any of my picks today, um, but they're definitely things that uh, you may want to look at for the long term. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah I yeah okay uh okay I like Goblin Dark Dwellers too. Uh my next card is again a Yidris oriented card. Uh I'm looking at Savage Beating. This is a red instant from Mirrodin. Uh it's currently about five dollars or so. Um this is uh an entwine spell that gives you 
um, an extra combat phase. And if you, uh, the other half of the entwine is that your creatures get double strike. So uh, Yidris, the way Yidris works, every single time he does combat damage, uh, you get to add Cascade to the spells that you cast from your hand. So uh, if you get a second combat phase, you get to swing again and uh, hopefully hit them again and give your spells double Cascade. And if you give your creature, if you give him double strike, you get to give him double he gets two. He hits twice, which gives you your cards double cast or double cascade. And if you somehow have seven mana, and then you're also going to have more mana left over, which are other cards that you will use when playing Yidris, uh, you can get four Yidris triggers in uh, one turn. And then if you manage to untap your lands, you can then start. You can cast a five mana spell and get four cascade triggers. So these types of effects are just very powerful with him. You just want to hit players as much as possible. Um, and Savage Beating is going to let you do that. Now, Savage Beating is a rare, again, from um, Dark, Dark Steel, sorry, not Mirrodin. Uh, there's, I don't know, what, 25 copies on TCG Player right now. There's not going to be a lot elsewhere on the internet. Um, I mean, this is just one of those cards that, you know, it's a 4 to $5 rare now. The EDH crowd will eventually pick up on it because there's a commander that will drive it. It'll hit $10, $15, and that's just the price it will be until it gets reprinted. Uh, and we won't really see it again until they reprint cards with Entwine. I can I, I can buy into all that. If you believe in y- Yidris, like, this card seems reasonable um, as a pickup. Uh, it's going to take some time to drain out of the market, but it's the kind of thing where anybody can just you know, decide to go a little deeper and give it some acceleration. 10 certainly seems achievable. 15 might be a push in the short term, but give it a year or two. It just stays popular. I can see it. I can see it. So my last pick of the day is uh, a card from Fate Reforged that is a mythic. Uh, it's currently available around $1.50, $1.75. Uh, I think it's going to be a future $6 card. Um, it's a unique and powerful uh and the card is Soulfire Grandmaster. Believe it or not, this uh, Jeskai Black Stalwart from uh, a year ago standard um, has now hit its floor. Um, and it's extremely powerful and unique um, for 2-2-for-2. Uh, two, two two. Uh, the fact that this thing allows gives all of your spells lifelink and this has lifelink. And then for 2 in either blue or red, you can basically uh, buy back whatever instant or sorcery you're casting. Um, are all things you don't see every day um, and definitely useful in commander, definitely use, useful in casual circles, could have an outside chance in modern, uh, in some kind of like aggro tempo burn style deck in Jeskai colors at some point, if the right combination of cards get printed to make that attractive. Um, I mean, just on the basis of Lightning Bolt and uh, Lightning Helix alone, the card is is at least something somewhat interesting in those formats. Uh, so yeah, uh, Soulfire Grandmaster is under two bucks, so I'm definitely picking up some this week. Sure, very powerful. Does something cool. I'm right there with you. Uh, all right, so my last card for the day is again on the Yudris train. Um, Seize the day. This is an Odyssey rare. Uh, this one, similar to Savage Beating. Gives you additional attack phases to untap target creature after this phase. Uh, there's an additional combat phase. Um, so it's a little less powerful than uh, Savage Beating up front, but it's got a flashback cost on it for only three mana, which is nice. Um, and again, there's some copies, but there's not really, you know, there's maybe 25, 30 copies. 
Uh, the price is a little lower. I think you can get in for four on the very low end right now. Um, so similar effect, same concept, just going to be really good in all those Yudra stocks. Uh, it's good. To me, it seems like one of those first cards people are going to reach for when they start uh, when they start building that deck out. Um, and I'm just going to toss one last one in here uh, as an aside. In a similar ballpark is uh, Bear Umbra, which is a totem armor that untaps your lands. Um, it's from Rise of Eldrazi. I mean, just copy-paste everything I've already said and apply it to this. It's the same same concept doesn't give you attack phases, but untaps your lands for attacking, and it makes you just indestructible. So, um, all these cards are in the same position. Yep, I agree. All right, that was a, a pretty decent roundup for the week. Uh, let's move on to our metagame week in review. Um, so, I guess the the bigger biggest story of the week was um, there was a major standard tournament in Denver, uh, a, a Grand Prix, and. The fear going into that, of course, was that Green Black Delirium was going to be playing Blue White Spirits all weekend. Um, this has kind of been the constant narrative of the last few weeks, as uh, you know, rumors have circulated that Standard is seeing um, lesser play as a format um, across the board in North America, um, and people have worried and pontificated about why that might be. Um, almost certainly, you know, as we've discussed. Uh, in the past on this cast, it's some combination of standard being an 18-month cycle for a while that only recently got fixed. Um, uh, the, the perception that the format was solved um, was also certainly a contributing factor. And when I ran a, a, a survey on the subject matter on Twitter, people just told me they were playing other formats. Um, so it's it's possible that you know wizards pushing um, standard hard for years might be an increasingly an uphill battle um, as player developed formats like EDH etc give people outlets um, to play competitively uh, amongst themselves at at their local LGS without really aspiring to the higher levels of competitive magic. Um, how true that is is only gonna we're only gonna know as it plays out over time. But what I can say for sure, looking at the list from Denver, is that Denver was significantly more uh, varied than uh, we, we may have come to fear it would be. Um, and there was a couple of decks in particular that jumped out, at least in the top eight, um, as being pretty sexy. Um, the Seth Manfield piloted deck that finished in sixth was White Blue Panharmonicon, um, which is awesome. Uh, because that's Panharmonicon is a deck I'm running in Frontier right now. And I also run Cloud Blazer, Blazers uh, and Thought Not Seers alongside Panharmonicon, as, long, as well as Reflector Mage in that format. And I was pretty stoked to see Seth, you know, one of the best players in the world, um, deciding that he was going to try to upset the Apple card at the Grand Prix on the, on the back of a rogue deck. That was certainly thrilling. Uh, my Twitter feed was nothing but people begging for that to be on camera as soon as they found out what was going on. <laughs> um, that was really cool. I also want to point out that back, uh, so I, I would say that the dominating narrative of this, these standard events. So Denver saw um, Marvel works have two decks in the top eight, uh, one in second place Madrid. There were four Marvel works decks in the top eight. One of them won the star city standard event saw four Marvel works in the top eight and it took first and second. Ma this weekend was all about Marvel works. Uh, and just want to point out back in two weeks ago, show 43, you called Aetherworks Marvel at three fifty to eight. And I think it is $8 right now. Actually um, might've dropped a little bit since, uh, since this past weekend, but, 
Yep, looks like it's just about eight dollars. So if I had that that noise button, I'd be pushing it right now, James. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is a card that's already made people money twice, right? Because there was a, there was a spike that came out of the early days of the Pro Tour, where it was doing well initially, only for the narrative to shift over the course of the weekend, um, as players like Matt Nass uh, uh, encountered the um, the variability of a card that can only look six cards deep and continually whiffed on camera, giving everybody kind of the impression that the card was was bogus and wasn't going to, you know, achieve tier one status on an ongoing basis. And then we have the period of inundation from blue white spirits and black green delirium, at which point Marvel is pretty much relegated to tier two. But then two weeks ago, we see black green or black red Aetherworks Marvel show up. And then all of a sudden now we're dealing with, um, Blue White Panharmonicon and Teamer versions of Aetherworks Marvel. I mean, I'll tell you what, I, I think that Kaladesh is going to play out in the long term as a very different set than, say, Battle for Zendikar. Um, there are a bunch of unique uh, cards that seem to be excellent magnets for player attention. Um, a ton of build arounds is the easiest way to put it that were largely absent in Battle for Zendikar, which is a very linear set that's built around Eldrazi themes that doesn't really play nicely outside of that field. Um, you know, the energy sub-theme in, in Kaladesh is probably only going to get compatriots in Aether Revolt, um, at least for the time being. But because uh, some of these cards are, you know, a lot, the artifact super-theme um, plays nicely with other artifacts and artifact uh, matters cards from throughout Magic's history, um, I suspect that, that Kaladesh will be uh, a better place to have money stored than many of the opportunities in a set like Battle. Yeah, you know... Battle's prices tended to be pretty uninspiring, and I know that a lot of us have pointed to the expeditions as being a major component of that. But what we may be seeing, um, you know, as Kaladesh plays out, is that it might have just been that Battle for Zendikar sucked as a set. Um, and I think a lot of people have kind of talked about this here and there as well. But you know, we're starting to get a, a kind of a clear picture with with Kaladesh coming through. Um, that yeah, I agree. It just there seems to be a lot more interesting things going on in Kaladesh, which is really supporting the prices and will help in the longer term too. Now, does that mean Kaladesh standard legal card prices are going to be as good as they were? They could be on Shadows over Innistrad or Eldritch Moon. No, they won't be. Uh, but I do agree that I think the set in general is going to fare much better than Battle did uh, over time. So here's my prediction for what's going to happen with Marvel. Um, Marvel's going to go to four, five, six dollars again, and then we're going to get more uh, spoilers from uh, Aether Revolt, and it's going to spike up over ten dollars because there's going to be a couple of cards that make it look like the deck is going to be undeniably good. Um, the some form of the deck. Um, will end up being undeniably good and will top eight a couple of tournaments in a row. The card will hold that price for a while and then get uh, beat out of the metagame um, as we move into Amonkhet and get fresh themes. Um, so I think my guess is we're going to get three total spikes on, on Marvel between uh, its release in the summertime. <laughs> really going to like triple, quadruple dip on this one? <laughs> I mean, this, this card and Panharmonicon have been acting very strangely. Like I bought... Uh, Russian Panharmonicons in Japan and imported them for $3 and then sold them in the US for 10 and then bought Russian Aetherworks Marvels in Japan and imported them at uh, 10 50 and sold them for 28 this week. So 
I don't know what's going on. Like it, these kind of casual cards don't usually move that well in Russian that fast. Like I was a whole expecting to hold these for a while or just play with them myself in various decks, and instead they're selling like hotcakes. So I have no explanation for that other than that that people love build arounds, and there are a, a lot of people that are inspired to fool around with these cards. Um, one of the things I've noticed with Marvel is that um, it doesn't necessarily require a strong energy theme. Um, Marvel reads, it's a, you know, four casting costs, uh, legendary artifact. And it says whenever a permanent you control is put into a graveyard, you get energy. So what it really says has nothing to do with energy. What it, another way to look at this card is whenever a permanent you control is put in the graveyard, something happens, blah, blah, blah. If that ha- something happens six times, then you get to look at the top six cards and put them, uh, into play for free. So that means you can use things like greater Gargadon. Um, to sack a bunch of your own permanents uh, and fulfill it works Marvel's requirement. You can use Arcbound Ravager to sack a bunch of artifacts to put a bunch of permanents in the graveyard. Um, there's all sorts of weird things that could potentially pull together into a Aetherworks Marvel deck in modern at some point. You know, you can use Simonian Spirit Guide to put it out on turn three. Gargadon was cast on turn one. You play a Thayrin Inspector. You've got a body and a clue. Then you play Kaldotha Rebirth and sacrifice your Ornithopter and you've got three more creatures. Um, wouldn't take that long to to set off the Marvel and say put Emrakul the Ian's Torn or something into play. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right on. I heard somebody else. I don't know if it was you or I. I someone else mentioned this at some point, and I was like, yeah, it's easy to forget that first line of text, but um, that's exactly true. You don't necessarily have to play a single energy support card. You can play it as a standalone combo piece um, because uh, it doesn't take mana to activate. Right, it's just turn it sideways. Um, so the no mana on the activation is really, really important. Does that mean it will absolutely break out in modern? No. no. Uh, but it is interesting that, you know, you have that option available to you. Yeah. So one of the other decks that was pretty cool in Denver, and this was a, almost a 1600 player tournament, by the way, um, was the blue red zombie emerge deck. This was running four advanced Stitchwing. You're probably gonna have to go look that one up. Four Elder Deep mm-hmm. Fiend, four Prized Amalgam, four Stitchwing Scab. So pretty much all the blue cards that can come back uh, from your graveyard uh, based on you discarding things. And then Cathartic Reunion, which you know somebody asked on Twitter earlier this week, what's the most important modern card that was printed in Kaladesh? And my answer was Cathartic Reunion. The the ability to draw three cards and dredge has just put that that deck right over the top. Um, uh, the deck was also running Fiery Tempers, Kozilek's Return, Lightning Axe, Tormenting Voice, and Fevered Visions. Um, we've seen element various elements that com- are uh, that compose this deck in other decks, but this was definitely a, a fairly unique take on on this strategy. Yeah, Cathartic Reunion is just busted. Like, really, just I kind of surprised that it got printed a little bit because it's just. So- so powerful at what it does like that extra card on that is unreal um, I, I i had the same thought because in in almost every other uh deck it's a terrible card um so you they must have realized what they were doing to dredge um and and here we are <laughs> so uh also worth noting the first place uh deck uh in in denver was mardu vehicles running inventors apprentice scrap heap scroungers thalia heretic cathar Thraben Inspector, Toolcraft Exemplar, and Veteran Motorist, alongside Harnessed Lightning and Unlicensed Disintegration. Um, also running two copies of Gideon, Ally of Zendikar, the ever-present Planeswalker of the Year, um, Cultivator's Caravan, uh, and four Smuggler's Copter. So uh, a grab bag of the usual utensils that are, are uh, available to vehicle deck enthusiasts. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to take a brief diversion over to modern um, just to touch on uh, some of the other things that came up uh, over the, the uh, shoot, like the invitational and uh, uh, the RBTQs. That's what it was. I was looking through the RPTQ deck list. I just looked through like six or seven top eight lists. Um, I didn't see anything interesting. I mean, I did not look at every card in every list, so there might be some spicy card choices in there, but I did not, I didn't, I should, I should say I did not see any archetypes that were new to me. Um, everything had been played before, which, but there was a lot of variety for the most part. There was a fair bit of jund, um, but I didn't really see much else going on. So, uh, you know, nothing new. So I don't know if you want to call that how you want to rate that, uh, in terms of health, health format health. But, uh, unfortunately I didn't have anything jump out at me like, Oh yeah, this is really awesome. We should, we should buy this. It's like, Nope, just nothing. Well, it's important to point out that with the SEG Invitational, um, it was a mixed format event. So you had to do well in both standard and modern, which means that just because, you know, somebody finished top eight doesn't mean that their deck was a uh, uh, perfect record or something in, in both formats. Sometimes you were pretty close to perfect in one and, and more so-so in the other. Um, but it was most of the most of the usual suspects. Um, and the standard top eight part of the Invitational, it was Naya Marvel Works and Teamer Marvel Works red green marvel works and green red marvel works so five of the top eight were etherworks marvel decks um and then there was an espro aggro deck uh, in the hands of jim davis that was pretty cool um this was running scrap heap scrounger alongside reflector mage that's a new one for me um spell quellers thraben inspectors toolcraft exemplar and thalia four copies of gideon again um ever present this card i'm surprised it's not even more expensive than than 30 um smugglers uh, copters which which card was that Gid- i missed that gideon Wait, it's been a Gideon Jura? No, Gideon Ally of Zendikar. This was in the standard decks. Oh, 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 oh. Okay, okay, okay. I no, no, I'm sorry. I, I okay. Go ahead. Yeah. So Smuggler's Copters, Stasis Snares, Revolutionary Rebuff, which I'm sure is the consensus worst card in the deck, um, and then two Declaration and Stone. So this was kind of like mixing and matching some of the white uh, aggro. Uh, components, some of the blue-white spirits components, and some of the kind of recursive elements uh, of some of the artifact decks for a pretty unique brew that I thought was uh, was definitely worth taking note of. Hmm. Um, okay. We also had a obviously had a black green delirium deck in the top eight decks of the standard portion, and then on the modern side it was uh, dredge, bantel drazi, two grixis delver, red green breach, infect jund, and dredge, which is pretty much uh, you know the poster children for modern at the end of 2016. Yeah, so I think overall standard standard was looking really miserable right up until this weekend. I'm not sure how you should feel about it now. Uh, but at the very least, things seem to be moving. There's there's happenings in the format. So uh, overall, I, I think I'm, I'm going to come back to what you said earlier, is that um, I think we're going to see one energy card get spoiled in Aetherable and uh, Aetherworks, Mar- Aetherworks Marvel, whatever the name of that stupid card is. Yep, it's going to get it. a little more exciting again. Um, and that, that's probably when I'll, I'll look to sell my copies unless they spike prior to that. Also, I was flipping through some of the past show notes, and I, I have to call you on a party file, James. You recommended buying Mirror Pool like four weeks ago. Oh, uh, what, what was the you, price you, four weeks ago? I think I think you had a dollar fifty written down. Actually, yeah, a dollar fifty. <laughs> well, I, I like it. I like it still. Yeah, 
No, no, I've given you a hard time, but I'm pretty sure I have done the same thing or like sat down to write it and then be like, this feels familiar. Um, but I don't think that's a bad thing because it just means that we like it so much that like we kind of rediscover it and come back to it. And we're like, <laughs> oh, yeah, this is still a good idea. Like just because the price hasn't changed, it doesn't mean it's it's not. Yeah, he, he, he's right, folks. It was only six weeks ago. So um, <laughs> apologies. But if you didn't get your copies or didn't listen to that show, then I guess that's still useful information for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, just All giving right. you a hard time. <laughs> so moving on to the most exciting thing that I saw today uh, was the supposed leak, quote unquote. It's not your daughter? Well, yeah, she's the cutest thing I saw all day. <laughs> she, she's ridiculously cute. Um, and as I told you off cast, we're, we've kept her alive so far, so we're already pretty proud of ourselves. The um, and, and, and apparently her grandparents uh, were talking about her with friends today who played magic randomly and uh, made sure to point out where we got uh, some inspiration for the name. <laughs> so, some? Some? Yeah. Well, it was actually a name that I that I had picked out ages ago because a friend of mine uh, is Turkish and, and had the name in, in university. And I've always thought it was beautiful. And then when it came out as a magic set, it certainly... Uh, made more of an impression in my brain. Um, but as a, a branding professional, I've always thought it was gorgeous. Oh, is it? Um, I didn't realize it was a Turkish name. Yeah, German and Turkish. In uh, Turkish, it means she who brings light to the heart, which we thought was nice. And uh, in German, it means she who will rule all, which was also uh, uh, a pretty sexy flip side to the first. Well, uh, other than that as a, being a uh, slightly odd word to use in correlation in conjunction with your daughter. Uh, I, that's cool. Oh. At least now, at least now when people in 10 years shoot you a side eye, when you tell them her name was Alara, you can be like, I heard it from the Turks first. <laughs> <laughs> well, keep in mind that very little that is that it exists in the magic universe wasn't stolen by one of their branding professionals from something they did web research on. Um, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. But usually, you know, usually they twist the name just a little bit right mm -hmm. which is which is a perfect segue into segment four yep. which is the uh reveal of atlazan today um so a, a thread popped up on reddit that uh some guy got a survey about magic and it included images from uh booster packs booster packs from amonkhet an hour of devastation and uh, more interestingly, Atlazan and Conquest of Power, which seem to be the block following Amonkhet. So if Amonkhet comes out in, uh, what, like spring and summer, Atlazan would be the next fall set. Um, and Atlazan looks very Atlantean. Uh, so there's your Atlantis to Atlazan name change, tying it all together. Yeah, uh, although the I, it was pointed out to me on Twitter a couple times after we were all like, ooh, wow. Atlantis, what a great theme! Um, that it was actually probably more Mesoamerican. Um, if you look at the the um, graphics that are in the background of the card packages, um, and these are booster card packs that were revealed, um, it it looks very you know Aztec or Mayan um, in its stylings, and it maybe that we were thrown off by the obvious merfolk on one of the packages and the um, potentially Vraska um, on one of the other packages, and the kind of uh, oceany blue green that was being used towards the bottom of the package to suggest that it was an underwater world it may in in fact be a mesoamerican world um especially since if you look at the other uh set uh the second set from that block uh which is called conquest of power apparently and by the way i think that's a terrible name um conquest of power it i'm not even sure that that's proper grammar but the um 
that package has a much more kind of like sun-drenched golden hue to it that uh, is very evocative of the Mesoamerican uh, cultural touch points. So um, we'll see how that plays out. Um, but it, it's definitely pretty weird in before the end of 2016 to know what the January 2017 set is. Yeah, this is really early. Sorry, uh, sorry, sorry. My mistake. January 2018 would be Conqu- Conquest of Power. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we are uh, what, nearly a year and a half early on that. Now, I want to... This This is also <laughs> segues very nicely into another part of this conversation is that offcast, we started chatting about it, and I commented that it showed up in the survey for Magic, and you're like, yeah, it's so clearly a plan on Wizards' part, um, which I, I am not entirely sure I agree in- with. Having worked mm-hmm. in the marketing field a long time, this is exactly the kind of thing that we would do, um, where you would send out a, a survey to some people surreptitiously uh, asking for feedback. Normally, if you're going to show booster packs, though, like if you're going to show card packaging, you would show options because you're trying to get them to rate which one. You're trying to test which 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 packaging the demographics are going to like better. So the fact that we just got they just got sent finished packaging, and I'm and presumably were asked, you know, what do you think of this? Um, is pretty odd, um, especially since I'm normally they don't release this kind of information up front. So if they were asking, if the wording of the survey was asking, asking about the Amonkhet packaging and, you know, the images of these other uh, set card packages were just kind of tacked on there by mistake because somebody double clicked the wrong file in their folder, that's one thing. But when you show them neatly arranged like this as a single graphic, which is I'm assuming how he got it. Um, that leads me to believe that it was intentional and maybe this is all part of the ongoing promotional efforts this fall to drive uh, the hype train a little harder so that uh, people um, stay engaged with the brand and and stay excited. Um, The problem with letting everybody know this stuff way up front though, if they did do that, is that um, there's not much in the way of excitement to reveal, you know, next fall when, um, Uh, Or I guess it's more like early summer that they would normally tell us about Atlazan and we would know that there was a follow-up set, but we wouldn't know what it was called until the release, I guess. Yeah, that's kind of my positioning on this is I completely believe that it makes like if they kind of wanted to spoil without spoiling it, they would do that sort of whoops, we put in an email when we didn't mean to thing. But this is so far ahead of schedule and really pulls the wind out of the sails of this release way down the line. And we've seen Wizards kind of bend over backwards, I feel like, at least publicly to, to rein in all of these leaks um, that I'm inclined to believe this was an accident. Now, I I think the someone accidentally double-clicked the wrong Doc file on their desktop or whatever is extremely plausible having done that myself a couple times um nothing quite this large uh and we'll never really know right um but at the same time those some uh a few cards got spoiled from Amoncat. um no i'm sorry aether revolt uh as well uh, like two three days ago and they're uh i think all the storyline cards are four of the story moment cards and a Wizards employee ended up following up with a tweet that I think it was a Wizards employee, maybe not, but somebody ended up following up with a tweet that was like, look, these are available, but they were not intended to be released. Just keep that in mind. So, um, you know, for all their efforts to constrain these leaks, I think they have uh, not been good at keeping that in house. Yeah. So to, you know, come at this from the financial perspective, what is this, you know, what does this empower you to do as a potential, you know, MTG finance uh, speculator, etc.? Um, well, what it tells you is what's not coming out. 
you don't have to worry about going back to Mirrodin in the fall. You don't have to worry about going back to any of the other planes because you know where we're going in the fall and you know where we're going to be as of next winter. Um, what that does is set up uh, a whole host of cards that are unlikely to be reprinted unless you think they might show up in one of the supplemental sets. So um, it doesn't give you perfect information, but it certainly helps you narrow the field when you're starting to think through those kind of topics. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that if you're if you're if you're looking at this and going, oh, I don't see Ravnica, that means there's no Shocklands. Uh, I would not be inclined to necessarily agree with you on that. Um, they can reprint those. Uh, remember, Fetchlands were originally in Zendikar, and then, well, they were in not Scourge Onslaught, and then they were in Zendikar, and then they were in Cons of Tarkir. So, like, there was no thematic connection there so just because there's no return the ravnica or return to return the ravnica doesn't mean we won't see shocks um I, and again from the and, and also from the financial perspective uh this may herald you know those cards look like merfolk to me at least one of them does i guess the other one does have a brasca uh now that you mentioned it does look a lot like brasca but the one is pretty clearly a merfolk so um you know kind of swinging back to what you're talking about earlier that it, this looks more like it might be some sort of mayan type culture um that they drew from uh which seems very plausible now that you know now that you heard it. Um, maybe we see a mashup. You know, maybe it's kind of uh, Atlantis mixed with Mayan culture. Although I don't know how often they're going to do that because I think they kind of like um, to not not run out of uh, wells of ideas too quickly. But in any case, if this does end up being Atlantis Atlantis esque or what have you, uh, it could it could herald the return of Merfolk. Um, which might drive several of the merfolk in modern pretty nutty in response. So Master of Waves is a very good one to start with. Then there's stuff like Lord of, Lord of Atlantis and a few other odds and ends. So just the idea that we might be getting merfolk might push, put you know, 5 or 10% gains on some of these guys. Uh, and, you know, if it is end up being a merfolk set, there's going to be one or two pushed merfolk, which might push the deck. Um, so, you know, that's, that's where I would, that's, that's the first level. That's, that's where to keep your eyes, I think. Yeah. I mean, Harbinger of the Tides from Magic Origins, for instance, is playable modern merfolk that's down to about 75 cents. Um, so if you, if uh, a really great merfolk themed set drives a whole bunch of Corbin hostlers towards the deck, then, uh, who knows? Some of those cards could easily take off. So one of the other cards that was revealed this week for either Revolt um, that caught my attention um, was Pia's Revolution. This is an enchantment for two and a red. Whenever a non-token artifact is put into your graveyard from the battlefield, return that card to your hand unless target opponent has Pia's Revolution deal three damage to him or her. This is an engine card, and what's interesting about it is it's very similar to the engine that was stapled onto Athreos, God of Passage, out of Born of the Gods. Um, whenever another creature you own dies, return it to your hand unless target opponent pays three life was the text on Athreos. So if you can figure out how to have, uh, how to make an engine out of artifact creatures cycling, then Athreos and Pia's revolution triggers go off together and the opponent either plays, uh, pays six life or lets you have the card, um, which leads me to believe that your engine is probably going to go off. Um, what that engine is, I have no idea, but maybe it's something to do with Greater Garganon and the aforementioned uh, foolishness around Aetherworks Marvel. Maybe it's something I'm completely missing. Um, the other thing that jumped out at me is if uh, cards like... Uh, uh, if Atraxa is going to drive uh, Planeswalker decks full of doubling seasons and deep glow skates and contagion engines and, and so forth, then Heart of Kieran, the legendary artifact vehicle that's been revealed... It's a 4-4 Flying Vigilance uh, 
uh, vehicle for two mana that crews for three, but you can also just remove a loyalty counter from a planeswalker you control rather than pay uh, Heart of Kieran's crew cost. What's cool about that is it doesn't actually count as one of the planeswalker ability activations. You can still do that on your turn, um, but subtracting a loyalty um, gives you either an attacker or a blocker or both. Um, which is uh, a pretty cool uh, interaction that I think will will be popular in those Super Friends decks on the go forward. So um, I think a lot of people are going to pick up on that. I think the card is probably going to start higher than you're going to want to get in on it. Um, but if for some reason it pops up on Star City at some kind of bargain basement price just to drive hype, then by all means, you want to be part of the first round there. I also noticed Heart of Kieran. I think a lot of people jump to that one because it's a mythic. Uh, yeah, I, I'm right there with you. Very interesting card. Um, and again, my 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 approach to this is not going to be necessarily specking on Heart of Kieran, but rather figuring out like what Planeswalker people want to play with this and working from there. I think that's probably your your best bet. Yep, I'd agree. Um, everybody's obviously excited about Yeheni's expertise and trying to figure out whether it can be made to work in modern. This is the sorcery for two and two black. All creatures get minus three, minus three until end of turn, and you get to cast a card with converted mana cost three or less from your hand. So, I mean, obviously, if if you can turn this into a, a newfangled Bloodbraid Elf by casting something... Um, uh, for three that does, uh, you know, extra things on the way in, has a good enter the battlefield trigger and has value on the table, then you could be getting some kind of a three for one or even a four or a five for one, depending on what was on the table when you cast Yehenny's Expertise. The problem is that if you're running creature decks, you're killing all your own creatures. Um, there are certainly c- creature decks in modern that are um, susceptible to minus three, minus three, as opposed to, say, minus four, minus four. Um uh, but there are others that couldn't care less. I mean, this is the not a, the kind of card you generally want to be playing main deck against Tron um, and a variety of the other combo decks. So I'm not convinced it's going to find a home in modern. It's going to take some some pretty detailed brewing to uh, work out what the right strategy is. In standard, it has many of the same issues, but I suspect that it, it ends up being the linchpin of a control-oriented two or three color deck. Um, that attempts to answer a multitude of threats in the format. Those kind of decks tend to be relatively weak out of the gate as people are figuring out the new state of the format. But, you know, six to eight weeks out um, from the release of Ether Revolt, we may see one of those uh, control decks take down a major tournament. Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, You know, I also noticed as I look at these spoiled cards that none of them kind of reference that three mana or less that we saw pop up on those three other cards that were initially spoiled. Um, I don't know what the meaning of that is. Uh, Maybe it's not as much of a theme as we thought. Maybe, I don't know, just worth noting that we're not seeing that three mana characteristic. Um, I'd be very surprised to see that in all five colors um, as a complete cycle because it's not as appropriate in other colors as it might be in in black or blue. Um, but who knows? I mean, let's let's see what we're what cards we are dealt, as it were, um, as the weeks really? go on. I mean, I guess I guess caring about monocost doesn't st- at first does not feel like part of a specific part of the color pie to me. Well, I mean, I guess you would normally expect to have some kind of a uh, a sacrificial effect attached to this or uh, a life loss effect um, to get this much value out of a black card. So from, from that perspective, it's definitely unusual. It, these are the kind of effects you usually see on multicolored cards because you can make the argument that the combination of the color pie um, makes them work. Like uh, Bloodbraid Elf was was an aggressive creature that gave you some card advantage, which was kind of uh, a supplemental theme in green. 
Well, so yeah, Henny's expertise is very clearly in, in black, but I just mean like the idea of cards carrying about three mana doesn't seem tied to a color, right? Like we saw the blue one who fetches for artifacts that cost exactly three uh, and Yenny's expertise, which is the black one, but it just seems like you could put that into effects of that nature into all colors, not the, sweepers, of course. Yeah, speaking of Trophy Mage, this is the 2-2 two, two for three. That's an uncommon, um, unfortunately, um, because it might have a home in modern. Um, it's entirely possible you can cobble together some kind of Cobblade variant um, because all of the valuable swords are all three cast and cost. Crystal Shard is a three cast and cost card. Um, Ensnaring Bridge is a three cast and cost card. It, Trophy Mage sets up a potential toolbox deck um, with a bunch of interesting artifacts that uh, you know could be something worth testing. Doubtful that it's tier one. Um, it, it sounds like the kind of deck that can dirtle a little too hard and end up at the receiving end of a giant infect creature to the face. But yep. um, <laughs> I, I imagine people will be testing it. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm sure they will. I very firmly in the no way this will work camp, but sure, more power to them. The, the again, one other thing, I, I, again, we God. just saw we just saw deploy the gatewatch in modern, so um, my mind is open. Yeah, well, yeah, saw whatever, whatever. <laughs> uh, uh, one other thing I want to touch on real quick is uh, Tezzeret, Master of Metal. Um, he's one. He's in the Planeswalker deck. Uh, he is com- supposed to be underpowered compared to whatever other Tezzeret we end up seeing. Now, he, and he is, don't get me wrong, but it's he's interesting in that he's not uh, not going to be aggressively costed for standard, so I don't think there's going to be a high amount of demand for him initially, but his abilities are uh, very playable in EDH. Um, I mean, his minus three can basically kill somebody in one shot, and his minus eight gains control of all artifacts and creatures somebody controls, which is a pretty big deal. Um, so he seems like the type of planeswalker you could sneak into play, wouldn't draw a lot of aggro, uh, and you can kind of expedite his loyalty gain through proliferate and then just like take everything a player controls. So uh, what makes him interesting is he's in the planeswalker deck. I'm not clear on what the distribution on these at is at this point i believe they're supposed to be pretty available but uh you know if they don't really sell that well and there aren't that many floating around and then two years later it turns out he's been pretty popular in edh because of you know cards decks like bray and what have you um we can see the price on him move uh and we don't know what their reprint strategy is going to be for these things at this point uh so just i don't know something to keep in mind so y- you want to know what planeswalker is definitely showing up in atraxa <laughs> what's that the- the Ajani Unyielding we got revealed. Uh, this is four green white um, for a four loyalty planeswalker plus two. You look at the top three cards of your library, and all of the non-land permanents go into your hand. Um, planeswalker, yeah. Massive card advantage. The minus two is basically swords to plowshares. Exile target creature. Its controller gains life equal to its power. Um, always a useful ability to have on hand. And then minus nine is put five plus one plus one counters on each creature you control and five loyalty counters on each other planeswalker you control. So if you have an effect that doubles the counters of your planeswalkers on entry, like doubling season, this guy starts at eight, goes up to 10. If he doesn't die on the following turn, he gives all your creatures plus five plus five and all of your other planeswalkers double or triple their loyalty. That is true. Uh, that that seems okay in a traxa yeah yeah i i don't disagree with you there um okay uh is there anything else you want to cover on all of this at the moment i think we're good brother we can wrap up for this week 
Okay, great. Uh, where can our followers find you, James? Our loyal listeners can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. All right. And again, I'm Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday over on MTGPrice.com, and I'm on the webcast, uh, Cartel Aristocrats. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service. For just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right, well, that wraps up episode 45. And again, I thought we had a great conversation. So thanks for joining me tonight, James. Thank you, Travis. And we'll see all of you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.